And there's so much traffic in space and such an enormous amount of space junk that we actually have a real problem and we really need to be concerned about sustainability in space so that we can keep using it for all of those things and so that we can ensure that it's usable for future generations. The sheer number of satellites being proposed uh, may not sound that daunting, but the issue is that if there are any mistakes made in space or there is a collision, the the impacts and the effects can be seen for decades or in some cases centuries. Will a collision or some sort of instance happen? And it's really a matter of probability. You know, how many times are we willing to roll the dice uh, before something happens? In this episode of Think Sustainability, we are talking about the junk above us, that is, the junk in outer space. We look at space debris. What is it and why is there more of it? Join me as we find out what technology is being used to remove space junk and whose responsibility is it really. You're listening to Think Sustainability, I'm Marlene Even. If we head out to space around 160 to 2,000 kilometres above the Earth, we enter a low Earth orbit, or LEO. This is where the International Space Station orbits the planet every 90 minutes, along with thousands of other satellites. Looking up at the night sky, space might feel far away, along with the current environmental problems up there. But the low Earth orbit is much closer than you'd think. I've got a good analogy. If if you're in Australia, but the way to think about this is that if you were in Uluru, Ayers Rock, your nearest um, population centre would be Alice Springs at about 450 kilometres away. So if you're in Uluru and the International Space Station goes overhead, that's at about 350 kilometres orbit, the International Space Station is actually your nearest population centre. So in relative terms, low Earth orbit actually pinches very close to the Earth's surface. It's not very high up at all. This is Dr Martin Bell, a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm an astrophysicist with an interest in space science. I mainly study black holes, but I use uh, radio telescopes in Australia um, and abroad to to study a whole range of objects um, out there in the universe. Um, Since sort of space exploration started, sustainability wasn't really thought about very much in the sense that old satellites were left um, up in orbit, uh, debris from launches, you know, were left up there. And in terms of sustainability, this has started to become a very crowded space with a lot of debris. So one of the major problems to tackle is one, the amount of material that's up there and, and two, designing technology that, that doesn't pollute the environment up there for future use. So getting back to the basics, you mentioned before there about space debris. What is space debris and how much is actually out there? The types of space debris that are up there, I, I mentioned flecks of paint, um, pieces of spacecraft, uh, parts of rockets, satellites that no longer work to you know larger older um, spacecraft that, that humans may have may have flown in 
how much is there? We currently estimate upwards of 6,000 tonnes of material is in low Earth orbit. And we regularly track over 10,000 pieces, you know, from a centimetre up to a couple of metres in size. So it's a very crowded environment. Um, and it's obviously once it's up there in a very stable orbit, it's a big challenge to bring it back down. Martin says we need to think about the velocity the space debris is travelling. Something as small as a chip of paint from a satellite is a danger because of the speed it's travelling at. But the velocities that we need to travel at those speeds to maintain those orbits are very big. And we start to move away from uh, metres per second you know, to describing the speeds in kilometres per second. And your typical satellite at these um, altitudes are traveling around 10, 11 kilometers per second. And if you just think about that for a minute, you know, that's if you're in Sydney, that's from here to the, you know, outskirts of um, Sydney in one second. So they're belting about pretty fast. So if you dislodge a screw during your ascent, that's traveling at 11 kilometers a second. And if that hits a windscreen, you know, the space shuttle, then it's game over. But out of all the objects belting about, small satellites prove to be the most in demand. A growing number of companies are sending out what's called a constellation of satellites, which is hundreds of very small satellites all working together for one goal. SpaceX, the company founded by billionaire Elon Musk, is sending thousands of satellites to surround Earth. His Starlink mission is to provide near-global coverage of high-speed internet by 2021. So uh, here in just a couple of seconds, we will be deploying our 58 Starlink satellites, which will be joining the nearly 600 that are on orbit. They have the approval to launch 12,000 satellites for their Starlink mission. And Space News reported that they are asking to launch a further 30,000. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition, and lift off for the Falcon 9. A recent paper estimates there are 57,000 new satellites planned for launch within the next 10 years. So, with the low Earth orbit getting busier, space experts are concerned this could increase the risk of collision. Why is that important for us here on Earth? Well, most of the tasks you've done today depend on satellite and space technology. To explain how critical space technology is in our daily life, I've called in an expert. Hi, my name is Cassandra Steer. I am a lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. Uh, and I also have the really exciting job title of being a mission specialist with the Australian National University Institute for Space. And so my expertise is in space law and space policy. We're so completely dependent on space-based technologies for pretty much every aspect of our 21st century lives. Everything from banking, navigation, telecommunications, aviation navigation and shipping, those kinds of things, um, but also our, our international um, trade and commerce is dependent on it. Health services are dependent on it. Our ability to track climate change. We're so dependent on it.
Do you think we've changed our perspective on sustainability in space or is it still the same from, say, five years ago? Oh, um, look, I think there's some bad, um, there's some, <laughs> some of the history of uh, space junk has been quite bad. For example, one of the biggest production of uh, space junk was from the Chinese actually uh, shooting down one of their own satellites. China's anti-satellite missile test in 2007 is considered to be the most destructive anti-satellite weapon test. It created more than 3,000 trackable pieces of debris, half of which are still expected to be in orbit by 2027. And there's been talk of other, you know, if you if you talk about the militarization of space, there's the possibility that this situation is going to get a lot worse. I mean, we, of course, want it to be very sustainable, but if, if countries start attacking each other's satellites and producing more junk, then that's a very worrying scenario. The Chinese anti-satellite test generated international condemnation when the debris spread across the low Earth orbit. Um, it was an anti-weapon, anti-satellite weapons test, but the way they justified it was, well, we'll get rid of this piece of defunct satellite. But what they did actually was cause an enormous uh, increase in the amount of space debris with that single event. Hundreds of thousands of pieces of this broken up satellite that spread out into various orbits. In March 2019, India completed their own anti-satellite missile test. This makes India the fourth country to successfully destroy a satellite in orbit, following the US, Russia and China. Australia has an advantage in the space industry, our location. It is why Martin came to work in Australia. Australia is in a very special position because we're obviously a very well, wealthy first world country in the Southern Hemisphere position. And I mean, I'm from the UK and this is really why I work over here, because we have the entire Southern Sky, which will contain lots of satellites by definition. And uh, the, you know, the technology needs to be down here to, to track and, and follow that. And there are some interesting techniques to track space debris. Well, they've actually been using a, a radio telescope over there. But what they do is they wait for radio stations like yourself um, will transmit radio waves like radar does. And it bounces off the space junk. And then you just track it passively so you don't have to send out any of your own radio waves. And um, from those reflections, you can work out where the junk is, what it's doing, and the such like. So this is a new technique being sort of pioneered in Australia that's holding great promise. Dr Cassandra Steer is part of an Australian technical advisory group setting up their own mission control in Adelaide. And at that mission control, no other country has incorporated space weather into the information that they track or share about about what's going on in space. And the reason that's important is because um, if we know that there's going to be a solar flare or extra radiation because of an asteroid belt or something like that that's happening further out away from us, those kind of things can actually impact instruments on a satellite. And if you know that's coming and if you can share that information with everyone around the world, what you've done is just prevent more space debris. How can we take out the trash?
Some suggestions include harpoons, nets, lasers and magnets. Some even proposed a satellite tax to account for the cost of collision risk. Martin told me about some of the ideas brought forward to clean up debris. Brilliant ideas for actually how to get rid of it from, um, you know, using magnets, <laughs> if you like, in a simple sense, to use magnets to pull it into a lower orbit, to using slingshots to, to push it up into higher orbits and to escape the Earth. Martin believes we should be focusing on being preventative. Lots of companies do either do what's called a gravity, but uh, gravity burns. They'll move their satellite into a much higher orbit where it's not a problem or just simply fling it off into space somewhere or um, decelerate it into the atmosphere to burn it up. That's, that's a really responsible way to, you know, providing it hasn't produced any other junk while it was up there to get rid of it. And then there's the sort of new approaches that may be needed in the future that, you know, really do send other satellites up there potentially to clear up, clear up the mess. That approach is being tested this year by a private company based in Tokyo. Astroscale is affectionately nicknamed the Space Sweepers. They were founded in 2013 as the first private company with a mission to offer space debris removal services to assure orbital sustainability. Our mission is to balance the element of space with sustainability because we think that those two should be going hand in hand uh, to ensure a, a long-term development uh, within space. I quite like the fact that you've got the label of space sweepers. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fun uh, company to work for and we got a great mission. This is Mike Lindsay, the Chief Technology Officer for Astroscale. Uh, He's speaking with me from the headquarters of Astroscale in Tokyo. Uh, it is sunny and about 33 degrees, so quite warm. Mike explains the complexity involved in removing space debris. Locating, rendezvousing with, grabbing a piece of debris and then re-entering it in Earth's atmosphere. There are so many different elements of that that present their own unique challenges. One such challenge is getting close to the space junk. Mike describes this as the rendezvous to match the speed of the space junk and synchronize with it. We actually call that a dance. And something else that's a key part of this problem is the, the docking with an object. If we're talking about just an arbitrary piece of debris, it could come in any shape or size. It could be damaged or dented. And not knowing what the surface looks like or what the shape is means that you would have to be very adaptable in how you can grab that object. You'd have to have a very highly capable robotic arm, for example, that can change its own shape to grab a piece of that debris that is a certain size. This year, 2020, Astroscale is preparing for an exciting mission. It's the world's first commercial debris removal technology demonstration using magnetic capture technology. One of the key technologies we're proving with our mission uh, later this year is the fact that we're using a magnetic uh, capture device that can 
attach itself to a docking plate that is on the other object. Mike explains that the other object, a satellite for example, would launch with a magnetic docking plate attached to it ahead of time, so that a magnet can attach to it. This means that the satellite goes into space already prepared for docking. It makes the entire process of, of docking that much easier. And so we don't have to have a complex robotic arm to grab any arbitrary part of the object. We have a magnetic capture device that can attach to the docking plate, you know, high accuracy and high confidence. And it really just kind of simplifies and lowers the cost of the entire operation. And one of our hopes is that we actually uh, set a standard for launching objects and, and, and set satellites that are prepared. And so the, the idea here is that an operator can actually invest in this technology before they launch in such a way that it makes it faster and cheaper to perform debris removal in the future. Astroscale is not alone in cleaning up the space junk. ClearSpace, a startup company in Switzerland, are doing their own debris removal mission, contracted by the European Space Agency. So with this increased interest in debris removal, I ask Mike what it's like to try and sell the idea to countries and companies to pay them for their debris removal service. He says countries realise that debris has a direct impact on the sustainability of future space exploration. A piece of debris that is floating in space does have a direct impact on the safety of operations of other uh, satellites and astronauts and human life. And so sustainability is not just an important theme and something that we need to uh, ensure for you know, protection of the biosphere, it is, but sustainability in this case also ensures that the utilization is continued to be safer and long-term. Sustainability is necessary for the continued use of space. You might have heard about the excitement surrounding SpaceX's recent missions. In May 2020, SpaceX was the first commercial company to launch astronauts into space. But it also made history because it was the first time a reusable rocket had been used to launch people into space. Dr. Cassandra Steer talks about Falcon 9, the world's first orbital class reusable rocket. And now that rocket can be reused several times over. So what we've done up until today is every single rocket that is built to launch satellites or humans into space. And there are hundreds and hundreds of launches per year. Every rocket gets discarded. That's the equivalent of throwing away an airplane every time you use it. So building an airplane, flying it once with passengers from Sydney to Los Angeles, and then throwing it away, and then building a new airplane for the next flight. So not only is the cost enormous, environmental impact is just um, horrific. Mike Lindsay from Astroscale says, while the support of ideas around reusability and recycling is in the very early days, it's building momentum. Reusing the rockets multiple times greatly lowers the cost 
of launching satellites into space. And we haven't quite gotten to the, the reusability and recycling level for satellites, but we are starting to see the ideas of life extension. As I mentioned, that's uh, a service that we will be offering. And then, you know, potentially refueling is starting to be an interesting topic in the industry. Uh, the ability to deliver fuel to object that's already in space or have your spacecraft go to a space gas station. You can imagine how inconvenient it would be if your car had one tank of gas and that's all you get. It's kind of funny that we that's exactly what we're doing in space most of the time. We launch it with one tank and when we run out of fuel, we have to essentially throw the satellite away. So overall, the themes of reusability and life extension, reducing the amount of resources that we're using to operate in space is, is a, a common theme that's starting to gain some momentum. So as the number of launches and satellites increase, as does the amount of companies venturing into the galaxy, so how do we go about international relations, laws, and treaties in space? It's very hard to wrangle the different countries, you know, because there's no international, um, you know, police for space. <laughs> so there's no one to come along and ask you to pick up your junk um, uh, after you've finished with it. Well, there was a time when Australia sent a littering fee to the US. It was in the 70s when a town on the southeast coast of Western Australia sent a littering fee to NASA. Dr. Cassandra Steer tells me about when space debris scattered across the Nullarbor and eastern goldfields. So in 1979, a large piece of a US space station broke up on re-entry, huge chunks of metal landed in Western Australia in the desert. Preliminary estimates by NORAD indicate that uh, Skylab has impacted at uh, 42 degrees 87 minutes south, 105 degrees 0.97 minutes east, which puts it off the southwest corner of Australia. In the this film Searching for Skylab, Local farmer Peter Mickeljohn describes the moment chunks of America's first space station came crashing down. And uh, then I realised that it was 17 tonnes approximately in weight, they said, and it looked to be coming straight at me. So I dived in behind the dual wheels on the tractor and I stuck my head out and watched this thing go up and over. And then I could see that it was going to go over head and uh, just as it got to about, I don't know, 10 or so degrees from going over the top of me, it exploded in a massive fireball. The Shire of Esperance Council sent a $400 littering fee to NASA as a bit of a joke. And while NASA didn't pay the fine, a radio DJ from California had his listeners crowdfund the fine to pay back in 2009. I just wanted to fact check that I, I read on the NASA website that there are no international space laws to clean up debris in our low Earth orbit. Is that technically true? 
It is true. Um, what we have is non-binding guidelines. So low Earth orbit is the orbits that are closest to the Earth, which are um, the cheapest and easiest orbits to reach. And by non-binding guidelines, she means... It's up to countries to then decide whether and how they will implement those international laws into their domestic laws. There are no laws in place to say you have an obligation to clean up that debris or to even... Um, think carefully about the impacts of launching hundreds or thousands of satellites. What we do have is, under international law, is a set of guidelines. So the UN came up with this, the guidelines on long-term sustainability that were adopted just last year. They were adopted in June 2019 by the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. They address the mitigation of space debris. Doing things like making sure that you're building into the design of your satellite what you'll do at the end of its life or ways to extend its life. Can you, can you have components that are easily replaceable or uh, can you come up with technologies like having robots that can go into orbit and service these satellites? So whose responsibility is it to clean up when things go wrong? Who is accountable for collisions or debris? Cassandra says it's the country's responsibility. Yeah, so we have essentially four key space treaties under international law that were drawn up during the Cold War when the, the space race was really at its height. And the Liability Convention is one of those. So the Liability Convention says that any activity that uh, is under your country's jurisdiction falls under the responsibility of that state. So if an Australian company wants to launch something, whether they launch it from Australia or from another country, that falls under the responsibility of Australia, which is why we have those licensing and permit requirements. But it does depend on where it happens. If something goes wrong at launch or before that object reaches space, then Australia is responsible no matter what happens. But if that object, that satellite or that space object or that launch vehicle causes damage in space, so for instance, if it collides with another satellite or if it, a piece of debris comes off and damages another satellite, in order for Australia to be held responsible, we now have to prove that there was some fault, that Australia was negligent or could have done something about this or could have known that it might have happened. And that's an extremely difficult thing to prove. The Space Liability Convention has been in action since 1972. But surprisingly, Cassandra says in all this time, it has not ever been tested in a court. Yeah, so although we have this liability convention, it's never been tested in a court. No country has ever used this in, against another country and said, you have to now pay. Cassandra believes the reason it hasn't been tested has a lot to do with political relations. The political cost of pursuing something like that, um, particularly if you want to turn it into litigation at the International Court of Justice, is just too high. It takes a long time. It takes an enormous amount of resources. And what you're putting at stake is your, your relations with that country. So that's the exact reason why Australia didn't do anything to pursue this, this littering in 1979 in, in Western Australia, because our relations with the US were more valuable to, the, to Australia. The Liability Convention has been used outside of a courtroom. There was a, um, a Russian or a Soviet satellite that broke up on re-entry and landed in Canadian Northwestern Territories, again, sparsely populated, uninhabited area that also happens to be mostly Indigenous land. Uh, and Canada triggered the, the Liability Convention. In, in other words, they wrote a diplomatic note to the, to the USSR and said, this has happened. 
we want to know more information about it because we believe it was a nuclear-powered satellite and we want to know what the environmental impact might be. And we want you to pay, I think it was something around $6 million to help with the cleanup. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics satellite disintegrated over Canada in 1978. Cassandra says Canada referred to the UN Liability Convention, but didn't take it to court. Could have taken it to the International Court of Justice, but they referred to it in a diplomatic note. And then the Soviets essentially wrote back and said, uh, yes, that is our satellite. We are not going to give you any information about it because we don't want you to know about our technological capabilities. Uh, and here's $3 million. And they left it at that. We don't want to have to go to a court of law. But the fact that this treaty has never been tested internationally shows us that there is, a, there is a concern for liability and for the costs involved, but there's a greater concern for the diplomatic relations and what the costs might be if we, if we test those. Cassandra says it's often better to solve these cases through cooperation and collaboration rather than through courts. But she did make a point that both the examples of Canada and Western Australia, that the debris fell on Indigenous country. And there was kind of a lack of concern because it's desert, it's not, hopefully not at all populated in those areas, but it's no accident that these areas also tend to be Indigenous country and there's very little concern for the impact that that has on Indigenous country. Um, Sometimes these satellites might be powered by nuclear technology, so there may be risks of radiation. The fuels that are used, you know, the materials that are used, we're basically just littering the earth and the oceans with, with this debris. She is now researching how Indigenous knowledge can inform current practices. And so I'm really interested to see what we can learn from, from Indigenous management techniques and sense of connection to our environment and that intergenerational responsibility. I think that's what our very young, nascent Australian Space Agency should be, should be starting to incorporate into these roadmaps and into the way we think about where we're going in the future. My biggest concern is to think about the impact of the ways that we use space, the same way that we think about our impact on our on-earth environment, um, on rivers and oceans and our impact on on the earth. We need to be thinking about our near-earth environment as part of our natural environment. So I have a daughter who's two years old. By the time she's in her early 20s, she will be travelling through space in suborbital flights to get from Australia to London in about four hours. And I can't even imagine the way technology will have transformed in that sort of 18 to 20 years. I have a direct responsibility to my daughter, but we have a responsibility intergenerationally to the way that we want to keep using space and accessing space and to, to the way that we impact on our natural environment. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded.
You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.